welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. In the final episode of Father and Son, I sit down with my dad, Jim. Jim Brownlee was a 30-year Division I head coach at U of E and Illinois State. He came out of retirement to be the pitching coach at Iowa in 2013. He currently works for my brother, helping with Diamond Sports Promotions, and he's also a 45-year ABCA member. My dad coached a son for eight straight years in college and coached with a son for 14 years. We also dive into some of the best baseball stories you will hear and a huge reason why I fell in love with baseball. Welcome to Father and Son. Here with my dad, Jim Brownlee. Uh, welcome to Father and Son, Dad. <laughs> Good to be here, Ryan. Can you just talk about your experience? Uh, you coached a son for eight years and then looked it up. You and Tim coached for 14 years together, and, and I coached with you guys for two years. Can you just talk about that experience of, of one, coaching us, and then uh, coaching with us? Yeah, it. Uh, you know, when I when you guys were growing up, I didn't get to see it very much because I was busy working at it and recruiting and all of that. I swore I'd never coach you guys, uh, but I didn't want to do that. And obviously, you know, I I pretty much left you guys alone. And if you wanted to come and throw and wanted to come and hit, I would do anything you want. But I never really pushed you very hard into any of the sports. You guys played them all and you guys pretty much entertained yourself. And uh, the first time I coached either one of you, I was running bossy field. The AAA team had left. And Bill Ballmeyer was the, the, uh, ran the Legion program for Pate, and he also ran the Colt League. And I just got done with uh, spring practice, and he goes, we don't have a, a coach for Tim's Colt League team. Would you do it? And I go, no way. I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing it. And Tim, they, their team when they were they, it was 15s and 16s, and when they were 15s, they didn't win a game. They were like 0 and 12 that summer, and so they were all coming back as 16s. And I went home and I talked to Tim about it and talked to your mother, and he said, "Yeah, why don't you do it?" And I said, "Okay." So I told him I would do it, and I went to a draft meeting, and Tim knew all the players. And we had the first pick because they were the worst team the year before. And uh, so I had the first pick and my turn came and I picked it. And they said, no, that kid's on another team. He's a bat boy option. And so the first four picks that I went after, I couldn't have because they're on other teams. But we won the league going away. And that was the first time I coached either one of you. And as things progressed, uh, we thought Tim was going to go to Miami of Ohio and at the last second, he said, I want to go to the University of Evansville. I go, well, you know, that's going to be tough. And so he chose to come to Evansville. And I knew as soon as the fall began, it was a great thing because I got to see him every day at practice. And so that was an exciting thing. And uh, he played four years. And luckily, he was a good player. Uh, didn't start as a freshman, but then worked his way in. And, you know, it was like having another coach. And then obviously, he coached 14 years for me. And you were uh, another story uh, because I really wasn't recruiting you. And 
you were you didn't get to play much as a junior with Coach Merkel, and you'd come home every night and complain, and I'd go, well, don't complain to me, play better. And uh, we've had to, we'd have that conversation quite often, and, you know. And then your senior year, you turned out to be really a good player and came on and grew into your body and batted third. And one of my fond memories is both of you winning state championships four years apart in the single class system. And so then, much to your mother's dismay, because she was finishing up four years with Tim and I fighting constantly and. I said, I'm going to recruit Ryan. And she goes, no, you're not. You know, you had choices. You had Tulane. You had Portland. You had a few good places that we had the tuition waiver with. And But you turned into such a good player. I said, he's coming to Evansville. And, uh, you know, it worked out great. And I coached one of you for eight straight years. I think the hardest part for me during the recruiting process was I had looked at so many different schools and I liked a lot of different schools and within the family, nobody wanted me to go to Evansville. You know, you wanted me to go to Bradley. Tim wanted me to go to Vandy and mom wanted me to go to Portland. So I think that played into, you know, how long it took because I didn't decide until we were still playing for the state championship uh, in, in June. So I didn't really decide till June after I had graduated from high school that I was going to come play for you. And I think my, my decision was when I finally took an official visit to Evansville, uh, I think that helped my my decision because I realized that there were guys on the team that I knew, uh, you know, even the older guys because of Tim, uh, you know, I, I knew guys on the team and it just, it felt like the most comfortable decision. And looking back now, I wouldn't change a thing. I would have, I would go do it again. Uh, but I think Tim going through the process first helped me a lot. And Tim and I would have conversations and, and Tim would be like, you know, I, and maybe Tim didn't feel like I was maybe tough enough to come play for you guys. Um, you know, but Tim and I would have those conversations and, and he was trying to get me to look at other places as well. And I think that's probably why it worked out best because it ultimately ended up being my best decision. And, you know, I wrote down some, some notes, you know, you talked about, you know, not complaining my freshman year of high school. I'm, belly aching about basketball and not getting to play more and that week at practice you walked into the gym at memorial and you're like well I'll take you home after practice and um we're in the car riding home and you're like well you know why you're not playing much and I was like no he goes well you don't you don't win every wind sprint so you know those are were some of the good conversations that you were honest with me that you know you don't, maybe don't always want to hear as a, a son but, but you need to hear that. And so, again, I learned a lot just from the conversations that, that we had. You know, with, with Tim going through it first, how were you guys able to separate uh, father-son and then player-coach? Well, you know, both of you guys really liked to play. You really liked to compete. And, and no matter what it was, and I was around you, on the games and playing games at home and different things and how mad you would get. And I always liked that side of it. And I think with Tim, Tim, and obviously he played four years for me and then was my assistant for 14 years. And now I work for him in diamond sports and I've worked for him for 10 years running the tournament. Uh, I never looked at, I never once looked at either one of you guys as my son. Uh, I looked as you as a player, and that's how I treated you. Uh, 
And then when we would get away, I think the hardest part would be after the games when we would get together as a family and try to separate it, you know, because it was more of you were players. Uh, you were you were you were not my son. And uh, I never looked at either one of you as my son. I looked at you as player. And uh, the good thing was you, you were freebies. I didn't have to spend any scholarship money on you. And so with I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? You, you didn't have the full allotment at Evansville. So talk about well, that a little bit, um, you know, just with the tuition waiver side of it. That's a huge plus. Yes, it was. Uh, I learned how because when I went there, I had three jobs. You know, Evansville was the worst job in America. I was a fourth coach. In four years, they were going from Division Two to Division One. And when I went there, we had three tu- we had three tuitions. We didn't even have three fulls. And then we went to five fulls. And then we went to seven fulls over the years. And then when we went to the Valley, we went to thirteen five. We got the max. Uh, I gained eight scholarships in one year. And uh, so whenever I could get uh, a local kid who's parents worked at Evansville that was a freebie for me and so we had a few of those through the years and obviously you and Tim uh, got full tuition and lived in off camps and lived in the dorms and then lived in apartments and so that was a, another freebie and plus you could play uh, but I never did look at either one of you as a son I looked at you as players and you know obviously we became very close as you played for me and through the years now we're still very close and that's a uh, it worked out for the best. When you made that scholarship jump, who okayed that? Was it the president at Evansville at the time? Was it Coach Byers, who is athletic director? Who okayed that jump from with, with that many scholarships? Dr. Vincent was the president, and he really liked sports. And uh, when we made the jump, you know, we could compete in the other league with the private schools, Butler, uh, Oral Roberts was in the league. Notre Dame, Xavier, SLU. <laughs> Duquesne. And we could compete with them with eight fulls. But I told him if we go to the Missouri Valley, that's a different beast in, in baseball. And we needed the max. And I gained this. I didn't have a full-time assistant. And then we gained a full-time assistant and then an, another half of assistant. Um, my early years, I did everything myself. I had no assistants. It was all volunteers. So uh, from, from that standpoint, Dr. Vincent had a real – Vision. I always did another job at Evansville. Uh, I was the director of student activities when I first got there and worked in admissions. Plus, I was the head baseball coach. And he said, no, you're going to be in. And when we made the move to the Valley, I was uh, the development director for the athletic department. I ran the Purple Laces Club for about five years. And uh, he said, no, you need to concentrate on the baseball. And so that was obviously... Uh, I worked a lot of college basketball. I refereed and I gave that up because I knew I had to recruit full time for the Valley. And those are some of my memories when we first got to Evansville was, was you doing the other jobs, not just the baseball side of things and, you know, no dugout um, at Carson Center. But those were the, the memories that I had growing up or, or you doing other jobs, but then also riding in the car with you to go watch games, but also riding in the car with you when you would go officiate basketball games. Like those were some of my best memories growing up is outside the baseball side of things. I love the, I love the baseball side of it, but I do remember like all those other things that we would do. And then 
we'd go to the junior Olympics for, for recruiting, you know, I'd ride along with you with that. So like some of the, those were some of my best memories, you know, growing up was, was outside the baseball uh, part of it too, not just on the field, but, but all the other stuff that we were doing together as well. Well, I love taking you guys officiating cause I never got to see. And so when we'd be in the car five or six hours driving somewhere to go work a game, uh, that was, that was a very good time for me to get to know you guys better. Uh, and you know, officiating was a big part of our salary. I didn't make a lot of money at Evansville. And so that supplemented our income and, uh, really helped us, uh, quite a bit because as I moved up the line to division one refereeing, uh, it became very lucrative for me. And just for people listening in, that my timeline in college, my freshman year, we were in the Midwestern Collegiate Conference, uh, so it was all a lot of private schools. And then my sophomore year is when we switched to the Valley. And just some of the notes that that I wrote down, you know, my freshman fall was was a tough transition. I would use this with a lot of my freshmen. Uh, as I was coaching on how hard it can be when you first get to a school and here I am playing at a place that I grew up around um, knew the program knew guys in in the program and it was still fast for me and you know back then you could play more games and so I remember we we would play USI the division two school seven times and we're, we're playing at USI and I played awful I was having a terrible fall and I'm riding back in the cargo van. We used to take this blue cargo van out with all the equipment out um, when we would go because when we played at Bossy Field then, and so that was like 15 minutes from campus. So we would have to load and unload the equipment from Evansville's campus and take it. And so I, again, I played awful, and I'm driving back, and that cargo van didn't even have seats in the back. So I'm sitting on a bucket, and you're driving, and you look back, and you're like, "Hey, do you have that number for for Denison College?" and Denison was a, is a division three school, good division three school in Ohio that I looked at. And I'm like, no, why? He goes, well, you, you may need it at the semester. <laughs> and, you know, you're half joking, but you're serious. But, you know, Tracy Smith and Casey Smith and I talked this morning and, and he had similar conversations. And I think you're seeing a lot of those conversations that I've had with guys is, uh, you know, it, it's good to be honest with your kids. Probably didn't want to hear it at the time, but needed to hear it. Um, but I was lucky that I also played with guys like Ryan Barrett and Matt Elpers that I had gone to high school with that were a year ahead. And Ryan Barrett probably helped me besides Brian Siebert. Brian Siebert was a senior on that team at Evansville. That was a second baseman as well. Brian Siebert helped me a lot, but then Ryan Barrett probably helped me more than anything. And Ryan Barrett is a guy that I played little league all the way through. He and I even played college summer baseball together. So Ryan Barrett was like my brother uh, just as much as Tim was. So Ryan helped me a ton. Um, and then the other thing I remember is every exit interview that I ever had with you at the end of the year, you, you would tell me that you were bringing in a second baseman and infielder to play over me just to keep me motivated for the summer. Yeah. Well, you know, I would, and you're going to be harder on your kids and, uh, you give them what they can handle. And, uh, you know, you struggled in the fall and we'd sit in the coaches meeting and Tim had just graduated. Now he's coaching. And uh, he's, he's saying, Ryan can't play. He's soft, this and that. And we did have a second baseman, so we put you in left field. And the, the one funny story, we're playing in the fall at Carson Center, inner squad, and you just kind of dogged it on a ball back to left field. And we had, I don't know what kind of fence you would call, I guess. It's a chain, it was a chain link chain, fence. And so the next day, 
Somebody hit a ball. It was Jason Emersack. 20 feet over the fence. It was a bomb. As soon as he hit it, you knew it was out. And I'm watching you in your left field, and you ran through the chain like that <laughs> just to show me. And you, you cut your face up, and I'm going, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that was a funny story. But, you know, then when we started that year in the spring, uh, we had really seriously thought about redshirting you. And uh, and I don't think you got to play the first seven games and we're at Stetson in a tournament with Virginia Tech and Purdue and Stetson. And uh, we'd go back to the embassy suites and I'd argue about who's starting the next day. And I said, Tim, I'm putting Ryan in the lineup tomorrow. He's batting leadoff. And we were playing Purdue. And I said, don't say a word. He's going to play. And uh, – and, Hey, for anybody listening in, uh, you know, these are things that I remember. And there's a picture of that spring trip where I'm not playing, where we're outside. You know, it's a spring training complexes, so they don't really have dugouts. So we're sitting outside the dugout. It's it's me, you, Tim, and Kyle Ritter, who was my roommate. And Kyle Ritter's an orthopedic surgeon now. You would have us do those player evaluations in the fall. And I looked at Ritter's evaluation sheet and we had 16 position players. I was 16th out of 16th position-wise. And, and I love Kyle, and that was another eye-opening thing for me because I thought I, was, I knew I wasn't playing well, but I didn't think I was playing 16 out of 16. But that was motivation for me as well, just one, to prove you guys wrong, but also prove Kyle wrong. You know, that picture was awesome because it's the, the four of us sitting there, and that was like the day before I actually got my first start against Purdue. Yeah, and your mother took that picture, and yep. we've got it sitting right here. It's a it's a great picture. Uh, we were playing at Stetson's Field, but they had uh, seats outside the dugout. But you know, and you never missed another game for four years, and you still blame it on Tim that you don't have the hit record at Evansville for those seven games. Well, anybody uh, listening, if you're a player right now and you're not getting to play, be the best charter that you can possibly be. Like that that's what I did those first seven games is I just wanted to try to stay in the game and I agreed with you guys. Like I played so bad in the fall, I didn't deserve to 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 start. Um, but I would use this with as an example with players as well. Like stay ready. You know, if if you're not playing right away, it's okay. As a freshman, you may not play all the time. But stay ready and, and do whatever you can to help. So, yeah, try to chart as much as you can and really stay in the flow of the game because I learned a lot from you and Tim as far as just trying to do things the right way and handle handle it, even if it's not going your way, handle it the way you're supposed to because then if you do get an opportunity to play, I do feel like the baseball gods are going to take care of you, even if you're not getting to play right away just because you handled things the right way and you're not complaining about not getting to play. But that that came from high school. You know, when, when you're bellyaching in high school about not getting enough playing time, you you showed me the right way to handle things. And you know what? If you don't like it, then you need to work harder and, and you've got to prove it. And Tracy Smith said that this morning. He's like, the, the world doesn't owe you anything. And the game of baseball, the game of baseball doesn't owe you anything. You know, you you, you have to earn everything that you get, um, but it doesn't owe you anything. Well, I think every at least ninety percent of the time on a spring trip every year, you know, because I couldn't take everybody because our budget was limited at Evansville, I would leave eight or ten guys home from the spring trip, and uh, every year somebody that went on the same the, the spring trip. It was their last road trip of the year, 
and somebody that didn't get to go made the rest of the trips for the year, and that's always the way it worked out. And I always tell guys, don't let the coach keep you on the bench. You know, find a way to get in there and be the first guy to practice, last guy to leave, and work, 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 and it'll pay off. Uh, Donnie Mattingly had a great saying when he he said, baseball finds you, you don't find baseball. He wanted to be a point guard in the Big Ten and uh, in basketball, and, you know, obviously baseball was turned out great for him. I would do a travel meeting. Uh, you know, when I was at Western, we would do a, a, a pre-season travel meeting. Like, that was the last meeting we would have before we would travel. And I would have guys stand up. I'm like, hey, I want guys to stand up in this room right now. You returning guys of guys that missed a, a, a series that didn't get to travel. And it's almost like 90% of the guys in that room actually stand up. So the new guys can see that at some point you may not travel. It doesn't mean you're not a good player, but at some point you may not travel. Well, and that, that's exactly right. Uh, it's, you know, in, in, in baseball, you're never staying the same. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. And some guys get worse and, you know, they don't understand it. They think it's going to be easy. Baseball's hard. Baseball's a game of failure. Uh, and obviously, being an old Marine, I'm a hard-nosed guy. And that's the kind of players I want. That's who I want to go to war with. And uh, I was very fortunate that you and Tim could handle what I would give you. And and guys would get hurt. You know, that's the thing I would explain to guys too. Like it, sometimes it's it's not just underperformance. Sometimes guys get hurt so they don't travel because they're banged up a little bit as well. Exactly. And the ball always finds you if you're not ready to go. That's one of my favorite sayings. That you got to be ready to go. And I've had, you know, since I started this and, and I knew you and I were going to interview at some point. So I'm writing down notes like the last couple of weeks to get ready for this. Where did you come up with dumping a player's bag out on the field? <laughs> I, I just, I. Uh, for, uh, just for clarification for people listening in, my dad, you know, he would warn us like, hey, put your stuff under the under the bench. And so guys would forget, and so eventually my dad would take a bag out, zip it, and you would see guys' stuff all over the field. So where did you come up with that? I've always felt like in baseball, if you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. From getting on the bus, uh, from how you wear your uniform, you know, how you look, uh, just doing the, the right things. And it was just I'd look down there and I'd see guys running shoes just laying where they took them off or their glove or whatever. And, it, you know, you can't put your bat and your batting helmet in the rack. You're, you know, I'm not here to be your mother. I'm not picking up that. So I would just throw them in the garbage can. I'd throw them wherever. And I've always done that. And guys love when I, I would do that. And guys would come in and they'd start looking for their stuff and they'd see it out by the third baseline, all thrown all over the place. And, we would laugh and have a good time with it. And I guarantee it'd be the last time they didn't put their stuff away. Well, Mike Stalloway played for you and Tim at Illinois State and then coached at Illinois State for a while and was a longtime coach. You threw his bag in the trash at one point. So he loves telling that story that at one point at Illinois State, you threw his whole bag in the trash. You didn't you, you might that must have been as you got older, like you didn't want to dump it out anymore. You just threw it in the trash. Well, sometimes it was just easier to throw it in the trash. So, I, but I've always been that way. And, you know, my roots at Evansville, when I got there, we didn't have roofs on the dugout. It was the worst field in the world. They hadn't put any dirt on there in 10 years. And I went to the grounds guy and I said, uh, 
can I ask you why the football field looks so nice and why the soccer field looks and the baseball field looks like a cow pasture? He said, well, I'll be real honest. We don't fertilize the baseball field because the grass will grow too fast and we can't cut it. Now, that was the attitude that I was dealing with. And, uh, and so I said, well, if you'll fertilize, I'll cut it by, by hand. And he said, you'd do that. And so I kind of won him over. And my best friends have always been my groundskeepers. And those are the guys you got to have on your side. And I treat them just the way, you know, I would treat anybody. But they're special because they got to get your field ready to play. And, and you played and coached uh, with, with Duffy Bass at Illinois State. I do want you to talk about uh, Duffy shorting uh, sandwiches and Cokes uh, when you guys are, are, are in the vans. He was a mastermind at motivating you. And uh, he was uh, really a hard-nosed guy. Uh, I kind of think I'm a, a mix of, of Coach Bass. I, I hope I'm a little bit more. When I was assistant of his, I was really a player's coach because I was the good cop and he was the bad cop. But uh, when I played for him and we really were good in my my last two years, we won the national championship my junior year and we had a better team and got beat in the regional my senior year. But we'd go on a spring trip and we his wife would make ham sandwiches when we'd leave on the road. That's what you'd get in a Coke. And one time we were playing a doubleheader, and so he had Cokes for us in between the doubleheader, and we were one Coke short. And so we said, well, we're one Coke short. And Duffy goes, well, who took two Cokes? And we're looking at one another, and nobody took two Cokes. And he says, okay, just start running. This is in between games now. And so we're running as a group, running foul poles, and we're talking, who took the Coke? And we finally figured out that he shorted us one Coke. And finally, we stopped running. And but instead of twenty cokes, he put nineteen out. And uh, he was a special guy to play for. A lot of my drills, the bunt drills I did the other night. We were on a Zoom with our players, and they were talking about circle in bunt. Uh, he was the best bunt coach that I have ever been around. Um, my senior year, I had thirteen suicide squeezes that were successful, and that was thirteen ribbies. I think I let us in ribbies because of the squeeze bug. I think the Zoom chat's probably the best thing that's come out of all of this. Uh, Andy Noblitz, a former teammate, he started this Zoom chat for UE baseball alums on Sunday night. So we've had it the last three Sundays, and you jumped on with us two Sundays ago. And so it was great. And, you know, I, you forget that you had multiple sports guys. Uh, Scott Akita played soccer and baseball, and then Robbie Leger played soccer and baseball. And those guys are talking about running more for baseball than, than for soccer. And those guys were soccer players, uh, just the amount that well, they ran. I had, to, I had to live on two-way players at Evansville. That was a freebie for me. Uh, Andy Bettis was a two-way guy. Rob Maurer was a two-way guy. Uh, you know, Scott Akita, Robbie Leger, there, there's a ton of them. Uh, Ty Keys in the early years were foot. I had a lot of football, baseball players, uh, and, and we lived on that. But the stories we told two Sundays were, were pretty good. I, they all kind of run together from from 1980 to 2002 of what group you played in. You know, I have. I was trying to think who was the first baseman on Tim's team the other night. You know, I had four or five local guys on the team, and I could not remember who the first baseman on his Where did Pat team. Schultz play? He played left field, but he was the first baseman his senior year. But yeah, that's field. where I remember him playing first was senior year. Yeah, we moved him 
in because of, well, we had Watson in center and we had some other younger guys. Can you talk about Ed Noddle? Uh, no one probably knows Ed Noddle, but I love Ed Noddle stories. Uh, I started to tell Ed Noddle stories last year to my team just to keep them loose because uh, can you talk about, one, your relationship with Ed, but then when he came to talk to you guys when it was cold at practice? Ed, Ed Noddle, they call him Singing Ed Noddle, and you should Google him. He he can sing like Frank Sinatra, and he actually was Billy Martin's third base coach at Oakland. Uh, and he roomed with Billy Williams, the great Cub hitter, was the hitting coach with Oakland. And Ed was a AAA manager of Tacoma. And when I met Ed Nottle, he lived in Evansville in the offseason. He was the Red Sox AAA manager uh, in Pawtucket for the Red Sox. And uh Bossy Field was run down, was the third oldest ballpark in the United States, and Ed was a huge fundraiser, and he got Paul Grease, the head coach at Central High School, and myself, and him, and we went to Steve Fritz, and we wanted to raise money for Bossy Field, and that's how I met Ed Nottle, and we raised over $400,000 and renovated Bossy Field, put a new roof on it, redid the clubhouses, and they still uh, do the Night of Memories. And they still do the Night of Memory, and they've raised over. It went from the Friends of Bossy Field with Don Mattingly and Bob Greasy and Andy Bennis uh, to the Hot Stove League, which it is now that gives all this money to use sports. But Ed, he is he ran all of the instructional league for the Red Sox, and he was high up and should have been the Red Sox manager uh, when John McNamara got fired, and the third base coach's name was Joe Moreland. Joe Morgan. And he, he, Joe Morgan, and he won no relation to the other Morgan. But he won 21 games in a row going down the stretch, and so they named him the manager next year. Ed was totally shocked that he didn't get the job and, and ended up in independent ball. But we went to spring training one year down there, and we played his triple-A team, and uh, – and that was a funny story as well. He took us out for dinner afterwards, and we ran up a pretty good bill, and he had to pay for it. I wish he was here to tell the story because he tells it pretty good. But he was getting ready to go to spring training, and uh, I asked him to come talk to our team right before he went to spring training. And it was a very cold day at Carson Center at our field. We all had hoods and stock caps on and everything. And he was a chain smoker, and he was sitting over in his car, and I noticed he had his wind rolled down and he was smoking a cigarette and blowing smoke out the window so i waved him over to talk to our team for five minutes give a motivational speech and he's got his trench coat pulled up over his ears and he goes boys i'm just going to tell you one thing i like coach brownlee a lot but this is not baseball weather and you might as well mutiny right now he said just run away he can't catch all of you just run to the clubhouse he can't get all of you and he turned around and he walked away that was his motivational speech can you talk about Bossy Field a little bit more? You get there in 1979. There's no dugouts at Carson, the, the practice field, and you're playing there. How did you get to allow Evansville – how did you get them to allow Evansville to play at Bossy Field? Because I feel like that probably changed the program for you when you were able to, to start playing at Bossy Field. And um, for anybody that doesn't know Bossy Field, it's the third oldest stadium in the United States behind Fenway and Wrigley Field. Uh, the – 
Detroit Tigers had a triple-A team there uh, when we moved to Evansville. Uh, Jim Leland was the manager, and Mark the Bird Fitterich was pitching for the triplets when, when we showed up there. Can you just talk about that process, how you got Evansville to be able to play at, at Bossy Field? Yeah, I, I want to tell one more Ed Nottle story. Though, Go ahead. Jumped into my, he was Billy. Uh, he was a AAA manager at Tacoma, and he's in Billy Martin's book, this story. He's coaching third base, and he gets thrown out at Tacoma one night. And uh, so he's up in the clubhouse, and the mascot is like Tony the Tiger. You know, he's They're the, the tiger Tacoma Tigers. The Tacoma Tigers. And he's in there going to the bathroom, and, and Ed sees him, and he goes, get out of that costume and he put it on and went out and stood by the third base coach for about three innings and coached in the in the tiger outfit and the umpires finally realized it was him and they chased him back to the clubhouse he got in and locked the door of the clubhouse and it was at the end of the year it was actually during the playoffs and he got fined a thousand dollars and billy martin paid his fine and that's in billy martin's book number one but as far as boys, wait, hold on. I, I Ed saved our season last year because I started to tell all these Ed Noddle stories because we weren't in a good place in the beginning of the year. We always played a tough schedule, so we started out rough. So I I told the guys, I'm like, guys, these are stories that I grew up with that I feel like I don't want them to die with me. I want people to hear these stories. So I started to tell the Ed Noddle stories because there's a million of them, not just when he was a manager, but when he was a player as well. So I'm telling, and the guys are dying laughing and it kind of loosened them up. And we started to roll after that. So I actually Googled the Tacoma Tigers mascot. So I would send our players like the picture of the Tacoma Tiger mascot every once in a while, but they loved the Ed Noddle stories. Cause I was like, nobody, I know these stories and my dad knows these stories, but Nobody knows any of these stories, so I, I called and thanked Ed at the end of the year last year as we're on our way to the conference tournament because I was like, Ed, you, you don't know this, but you, you saved our season because it, it loosened our guys up and they appreciated the stories about baseball. Yeah, he, and he actually cut a, an album with the Oakland Symphony, and he has, they call him Singing Ed Nottle. One more Ed Nottle story. Uh, he was the last pitcher cut by Al Lopez and the White Sox two years in a row and had to go back to AAA, and their AAA team was in Indianapolis. And he was the best – he was a closer because he could throw every day. He was one of the first true closer in the mid-50s in AAA. But the second year, he knew he was going to get cut. It was the last day of spring training. So he goes, I'm not shagging balls for two hours during batting practice. So he's in his uniform, and right behind the ballpark at Sarasota – there was a pizza hut. Ed Nottle went in his uniform and drank beer and ate pizza while batting practice was going on. And then he comes in, and they're going to give him his green card, and he starts yelling at Al Lopez that, I know I'm going back to Indianapolis, but I didn't shag one ball today. That's a true story. So talk, far, talk about Bossy Fields some more. As far as Bossy Fields concerned, when, when we moved there in 1979, they, it was the Tigers AAA team, and Jim Leland was the manager. And you walked into that place, and there was 5,000 chairbacks. But when you walked up the ramp, the home plate was eight feet from the backstop. You could hear the umpires and the catchers talking. It was unbelievable. And the guys you got to, to see play there uh, – this is one of my favorite stories about Bossy Field, and then I'll tell you how I inherited it 
Boots Day was a scout for the Tigers. He ended his career as a player coach with the triplets, and then he became a scout for the Tigers and was an advanced big league scout, would scout for players to trade. And his wife became very good friends with my wife, and he was scouting the White Sox in, <coughs> excuse me, in Chicago, and the Tigers were in town. So he said, why don't you bring my wife for the weekend? You guys, go. we'll go to the Sox-Tigers game. And the White Sox had a center fielder named Vance J Johnson, and they're playing, and it's Saturday night, and it's the ninth inning. The White Sox are down two runs, bases loaded, two outs, fly ball, and everybody's running for Detroit, and Vance Johnson is camped under this ball, and he drops it. And three runs score, and the White Sox lose the game. On Monday night, Indianapolis is, is playing the Evansville Triplets, and I said to Candy, your mother, do you want to go to the game? Because it was a nice, you know, August night. And she said, sure. So we're walking in and they're announcing the lineups and batting leadoff for the Indianapolis team was Vance Johnson. And they announced his name, batting leadoff center fielder Vance Johnson. And your mother goes, how do I know that name? And I said, well, you watched him play three games on this weekend in Chicago in the big leagues. He was a White Sox. And he dropped the fly ball, and they sent him back to AAA. That, that was a true story. You know, we would play exhibition games, or we'd play a game. Our field was terrible. But we didn't play a lot of games at Bossy Field. And then I got to be really good friends with Chuck Murphy, who was a GM. And then we started this renovation, and, uh, and he really appreciated me. And then we started playing some games out there. And we would take care of the field for him and get it fixed up and do some things. And he really liked it. And then Larry Schmitto, who wanted to have a big league team in Nashville, came in and bought the franchise because in order he had to show major leagues that he could run a triple A franchise in Nashville and they sold it. And we were supposed to get a team in the Midwest League. And that didn't happen. But Chuck Murphy gave me the keys to Bossy Field. I basically was in charge. And they were going to hire me as the grounds guy. I still could stay the coach at Evansville. But I had the keys to Bossy Field. And they, then we just moved out there and started playing all our games, took care of it. And we kind of basically inherited it and played there for 10 years. When did the Evansville High School area team start playing there then? They always played there. They always played there. Yeah, we, we would have as many as 300 games a year there between the high schools. All the high school games were there. There was a doubleheader every night. That place was always for high school baseball and Legion baseball, as well as the triplets. Yeah, and they've done a tremendous job with, with upkeep of it, now, of it now with the Evansville Otters playing there, and the high schools do still play there a little bit. But back then, you know, when I was growing up, and a lot of the high schools had, like, practice fields, but not as many. So, a lot, you know, it was a huge deal to actually play at Bossy Field. Um, I, my games in high school were on television. I mean, it was a it's a huge baseball area, and I appreciate the fact that we moved there in 1979. And just lucky that I grew up in a, in a huge baseball town. Evansville is a huge baseball town. Yeah, and we, we were really, that was the lifeline of our program, recruiting Evansville kids and the kids in the area because it was such, the high school coaches were so good. And I'm very proud that Harrison has a field now. Central has a field now. Bossy, Bossy High School has their own field now. Uh, a lot of them 
Uh, North has their own. None of them had any fields when when we started baseball there, uh, and it, it grew in. And it obviously '88 with Andy Bennis and Robbie Maurer that turned our program around, and we were playing at Bossy full time. And I was able to get really good teams that to come in to play the University of Evansville because of Bossy Field. Uh, the one year we had a tremendous tournament with the eight Division One teams in Indiana to kick off the year. The Pro Scouts loved it, and uh, we were able to get it in the first week in, in March and ended up playing Notre Dame in a championship game. Well, and then when Bennis was with Team USA, Team USA played at Bossy Field that summer before he got called up with the Padres. I just told your mother that story the other day. They were playing the Japanese national team and the legendary Marvin Gray, the flag master who took care of Bossy Field and knew every, had every flag. We find out that the, the national team is coming in and we have to have a Japanese flag because the American flag and the Japanese flag have to be flown over Bossy Field for the national anthem. So we have no idea where we're going to get a Japanese national flag. And Marvin Gray says, I have a flag of, from Japan. And so we go, great, Marvin. And he's got a four by six that we can fly in the flagpole. Well, we find out this was the flag they would fly when they would go on kamikaze suicide missions. And the Japanese people get there and they go, you can't fly that flag. So then we were really in a tither because we didn't know what to do. And we got through it. But that was a, a very funny story. And that's probably my first memory of Bossy Field is of Marvin Gray. Uh, for anybody listening in, Marvin Gray was a ballpark person, uh, autistic, but highly functioning, uh, would sweep the floor for the basketball, high school basketball state championships. So Marvin was always around. And, you know, I'm five years old and I'm trying to run outside of Bossy Field to, to get foul balls. And Marvin starts yelling at me, and I'm like, who's this old man, like, screaming at me? But come to find out, you know, he's just a ballpark guy. But, you know, you're in his relationship was unbelievable. You know, he'd walk everywhere. He'd walk to our house for Christmas, and you guys, you and Mom would have a Christmas gift for him. Uh, but, you know, that's some of my biggest memories growing up is Marvin being around, would hang out in the clubhouse with you guys after games. Uh, and, and just one of those unique stories of baseball, I think all old ballparks – no matter where they're at in the United States, have ballpark people that are around. And, you know, that's just a wonderful story of, of, of Marvin Gray. Well, Mar Marvin, and we inherited Marvin because he worked for the triplets, ran the scoreboard. It was like the one at Wrigley Field with the old wood numbers. And Marvin would taunt the other team. He'd be up on the scoreboard. And when the triplets would score four or five runs, he would take the wood number five and just wave it, and the crowd would go crazy, and he would taunt the other team. And then Bossy Field had a, a flagpole that was like 200 feet high, and I'll tell that story. But this is the first time I ever met Marvin. Uh, obviously, I said I was the fourth coach in four years, and my first team at Evansville, we were 7-37. and 37. We were just awful. And uh, I would come home at night, and your mother would say, you left that pitcher in a long time today. And I said, well, our bullpen's not very good. Well, the next day I come home for dinner and she go, how come you took that pitcher out so fast? And I go, well, you might as well just skip this year and be quiet till next year. We'll, we'll get it straightened out. And then we got to go. But I walked into a triplets game after that spring of, of 80 and Marvin would always sit right by the main entrance. And there's probably 3000 people at the triplets game. And I hear, 
Coach Brownlee, seven and thirty-seven, worst record in the history of the University of Evansville. And so I just keep walking, and then I and this guy gets closer and closer to me, and I turn around, and it's Marvin, and he would know every stat imaginable. He could tell you everything, and so I I realize you know that he's autistic and everything, and we became very good friends. And then when the triplets left, we inherited Marvin. He took care of the park force, and I'll tell one more story on him. It was the beginning of the year, and we were playing Austin P on a Tuesday. And Marvin had it time when they would play the national anthem that the flag would get to the top of the flagpole at the end of the anthem. He wouldn't run, and he would do it to the beat of the national anthem. And we had a 10-foot-high plywood fence that was rotting out. And uh, we're, we're at home plate. And we're going over the ground rules, and they're getting ready to play the national anthem. We get done with the ground rules, and they start the national anthem. I look out to center field, and Marvin has got his arm stuck through the fence, separated, and he's waving frantically at us not to play the national anthem because somebody in the winter had cut the rope. And we hadn't checked it. It was the first game of the year. And you had to have the firemen come to redo the, the rope. And he got so mad because Harry Sigma played the national anthem. And he come running into the dugout. And I said, okay, Marvin. The next day we were playing St. Louis. I said, Marvin, do you have a flag? He said, yeah. I said, well, just stand at home plate with it. So Marvin came out, stood at home plate with the four by six flag, and we played the national anthem. So he was okay with that. You know, with the Zoom chats, you know, I'm looking, there's been 20 of us, 15 to 20, and I'm looking at the amount of guys that are, are still involved with baseball, whether on the pro side, the college or high school side. And, you know, Sal Fasano, who's the coaches with the Braves, and then Jamie Carroll, who coaches with the Pirates, both had really good college, uh, college and pro careers. They were talking about some of your favorite quotes. So I, w- I rolled through here like some of my favorite quotes. And, you know, excuses are for losers. Uh, Sal talked about if a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump its butt on the rocks. Coach Metzger at Wright State talked about never seen a jackass win the Kentucky Derby. Win the Kentucky Derby. Um, if it was easy, then everybody would do it. And then weren't here for a long time, here for a good time. You know, where did you pick a lot of those up from? I don't know. Just uh, I like to read a lot and just I'm old, you know. <laughs> you weren't <laughs> you know, old back it, then. You know, it just uh, and it, it fits, uh, you know, all those things. It just fits and uh, it's fun. And guys remember it. I think that's uh, the whole thing. Uh, don't pee on my back and tell me it's raining. You know, that's another one of my my favorite one, but there are things that I stole from people and guys remember that we're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. And that's a, that's one of my favorite one. And that's how I live life, you know? And so I, I just think you accumulate those things and they fit. And, uh, you know, Jamie Carroll and Sal, uh, they both played in Cleveland. That was one of my special times. They're both playing for the Indians, two university of Evansville guys on that team. And, they both grew fruit man shoes, and you know, if it was easy, everybody'd be doing it. And it's not; it's not easy. Baseball is not an easy game. When I was playing, and Tim starts coaching, we had really good athletes on the position player side. So we stole a bunch of bases. Can you talk about when the Oakland Athletics called you and asked what you did for running development? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I always was interested in the running game because I didn't have guys that could hit. We always had good pitching, good defense. 
and guys that could run. So I'm trying to figure this out. And I always was interested in the running game. We had a, when I played at Illinois state, we had a, first, uh, uh, one of our assistant coaches, uh, Larry Winterholder, who was a longtime coach at Taylor university. He really was good at reading pitchers, uh, picking up the signs from the catchers, running on breaking balls and putting you on your own. And Duffy would really let guys run on their own. You know, now if you screwed up, you were going to catch it. But, uh, and so I, I had smart guys. And so I would always let guys, as we developed the running game, run on their own. I would have a stop sign that stop them from running uh, if, if I didn't think it was the right time to do it. But if I didn't stop you, you were going to go. And then we really got into where we could steal third a lot easier than second. And uh, and I always had guys that could run. I was I was big on having athletes and, you know, and you can steal bases even though you're not fast if you're intelligent and you can read the pitcher and and, and pay attention. Sal stole a bunch why, of bases. Yes, he did. And uh, that's why I always would get on guys in the dugout who weren't watching the game. That was a big pet peeve of mine. I would throw baseballs at them. I would throw things at them. I'd catch them not paying attention. And getting, whether you're playing or not, you ought to be paying attention to what, what's going on. And so that's how I developed the running game. And I think we stole 204 one year. And we were really good against lefties. Uh, we learned that just from a guy that just passed away, Rich Hacker, who was Whitey Herzog's right-hand guy for years. He was scouting. And we were in spring training in Lakeland. And we faced Central Florida. Mike Mack was the pitching coach, left-handed guy. The move. And his, his pick pitchers had the best move. You'd be one step off the bag, and he'd pick you off. And so Rich Hacker's at the game, and I go, what do you think we should be doing here? And he said, well, get a big lead, and you got to be alert to then throw early, but go back to the base when he on first movement. And we started doing that, and that drove Mike Mack crazy. And then all of a sudden we would go on first movement, but somehow Oakland got wind of us, and they called us and said, you know, can you talk to us about your running game? And I did. For coaches listening in, Mike Mock uh, was a longtime coach, and collegiate baseball will reissue a lot of his stuff. His book is called The Move. Uh, it's the best book written for left-handed pickoff moves, and the drills that he has in there I still would, would use – you know, one of the best ones is setting up a chair on the mound and having your lefties throw from to first base from the mound to get their shoulders looking like they're going to the plate. Uh, he's got just a lot of really good drills for anybody that's interested in, in figuring out how to teach left-handed pickoff moves. Not the easiest thing to teach, but his drills that he has are, are great for teaching left-handed pickoffs. He has a sequence of about five drills and they're they're outstanding and I've always used them it's almost it teaches a left-handed pitcher to be able to throw one of them is thrown to first base with your eyes closed and you know his big premise is you have the guy picked off before you throw the ball and then it's just getting it over there and making it look like you're going home when you go to first base. By the way, by the way, when the there. athletics called you about that, your your answer was just make guys run hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had, you know, Jamie Carroll was a flyer. Mike Zwicka, you know, we had some flyers on that team uh, my junior year. Um, which and Tim had a lot to do with that too. Tim was a really smart baseball coach. Uh, he did a really good job of coaching first base and telling us when to go because. 
I, even though some of us were smart, probably not great feel for, for the game itself. So Tim did a really good job of, of getting us going and, and telling us uh, on certain counts when to run. So Tim did a tremendous job with that as well. Can you talk about your first ABCA convention and then how many you've been to and then what year? this? I think it's 45 years you've been an ABCA member. That's correct. Uh, my first one, uh, I was a young assistant with Coach Bass at Illinois State. And he was, he was big, and it was first starting then. But he was huge. What year is this? Uh, I I want to say seventy four. Okay. Uh, and I might have the year wrong, but it's around. And it was in St. Louis U. At it was called a Stouffer's. And if you remember the old ballpark, it's saying it was the the circular hotel right across the street from the old ballpark, from the old Bush Stadium, and. Uh, there were there were probably 200 college coaches at it. I mean, to what it's grown into today. But the speakers were unbelievable. And the one thing that I think is unique about baseball coaches is they're willing to share their secrets. And going to the convention, it's not always what you, you hear in the convention hall. It's what you hear in the hallways. Uh, one year I remember talking to Itchy Jones about hitting – in the hallway for two hours and he was just he was more than gracious about about giving that and i think you go there you don't change your whole philosophy about coaching after you leave the convention after four days but you pick up one or two things every year that gets you pumped up to go and you know i've been a member for 45 years i i was out of college coaching uh for three years where I was a high school coach, but I still went to the convention. And, uh, you know, it's been in some unbelievable places, Miami, uh, California, whatever. And every year you go, and I, I still love going. I still enjoy the camaraderie and the fellowship. And uh, Well, those are some of my best memories of coaching, uh, you know, especially when I got into it with you and with Tim was being at the ABCA convention. Those are some of my best coaching memories was being able to hang out with you guys there at, at that time and, and being at the convention with you guys. Those are, are always some of my best memories looking back now because you get to experience a lot of really cool things and meet really neat people in baseball. Well, just like this year, Coach Matthew from North Central got a, a house that we rented. Yeah. And, and that was he and I, before I took the ABCA job, he and I were talking and I was like, we're probably gonna have a hard time getting rooms in the Opryland. I'm like, we should look into an Airbnb. Uh, and this was right before I took the ABCA job. So we got that all set up. And then I had to call him and be like, Hey, I, I can't get in the Airbnb now that I'm with the ABCA. But that was something that he and I talked and I'm, I think it worked out great for you guys. And here you are rooming with Derek Johnson, the pitching coach of the Reds, and Tim Stoddard, yep. who, you know, pitched, won a World Series game, I believe, and pitched in the big leagues for a long time, and now is the and pitching coach. And played for a national championship in basketball. Basketball, played with David Thompson, and, and played in the Central Illinois Collegiate League for Bloomington, where I live now. Uh, and those two guys, we had a session that went to the wee hours of the morning talking on pitching, and uh, it was awesome. And so, you know, things like that are the things that you remember about the convention. Do you feel like your biggest legacy is getting two stadiums built at two different schools? I, I think when I think back to 1979 and I went to Evansville and we had no roofs on the dugout, and 
Itchy Jones told me, you can come and play at Southern all you want. I'm trying to do the schedule. And he goes, you can come to Carbondale and play at our field all you want. I'll never come to Evansville. And I go, you'll never come to Evansville? He says, not till you get that field fixed. Well, it took me three years, and I got it fixed up. And then he started. we started playing home and home, and he was so gracious. I, I would say I'm, I'm very proud of what I did with Bossy Field. And Bossy Field is the third oldest ballpark compared to, to Fenway and, and Wrigley. Wrigley Field. The Braun Field, uh, the guy that built it, Alan Braun, is a, is a trustee at the university and was a big Notre Dame guy. And he would frequent an establishment that I went to for refreshments. And I worked on him for 10 years. And I said, well, I just want one brick better than X Stadium at Notre Dame. And he did that. And then I built, you know, the one at Illinois State. And I'm proud of all three of those places. And probably a pretty good legacy how much you know w- with getting the the bronze stadium built you had to carry the load a little bit for the softball side as well right yeah that was part of it you know with with the title nine if you're going to build one you got to build the other one and uh and so you know we got it all done and it really helped the complex they had dropped football and they fixed up the the soccer stadium and and made it a whole project and that's how we got it through with what you're doing with tim now with diamond sports promotions you watch a lot of high school games still you know you're in florida in february and you go watch college games what do you feel like is the biggest difference in the college and high school game now than when you first started and then what are some of the similarities Ooh, that's a good question um i i i think the hardest thing right now for for high school kids is they need to understand that there's a place for them at at some school. It may not be a Division One school, uh, but there's a place for them if they take their ego out of it. There's a lot of great Division Three. There's a lot of great Division Two program. There's a lot of great junior college program. And if you want to continue your career. You, you have a place you can play. And I think that's one of the, the hardest things right now uh, is for them to, to evaluate themselves and uh, how to do it, how to get in front of a college coach and, and, and those types of things. And I think that's very, very difficult for them right now. Well, and you have a lot of interactions with parents as well. I mean, what are you seeing what the difference is with parents right now as opposed to in the past? Well, I, I think there's so much exposure now. And there's so much information out there, and there's so much hustling going on, and everybody trying to make a buck, and uh, it's just uh, it, it's kind of mind-boggling where where it's going, and who do you trust, and who don't you trust, and trying to get the right advice with it, and uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people in the summer that are very unrealistic, you know, about where they're going, what they're doing, and how they're how they're trying to do it. Uh, and they don't enjoy the game. The game should be have fun. I think that's uh, that's the bottom line. If you don't enjoy it and you think it's work, when guys say I really work at the game, then I was always leery of that guy. I don't think it's work. I think you got to get better. You you got to enjoy working. It's not work. Did you ever think in 1979 that we would have this many games on television, national television for college baseball? Well, Gene Stevenson had a plan. In the early '70s, we used to play. We used to play 
like 35 games in the fall. We used to play 75 games in the spring, and we wanted to move it to the summer and play in, ba- in major league stadiums. And I hope someday we get there. We've been talking about it forever about moving the season and. Uh, you know, this is, this is some of the conversations that I try to throw out there to some of the young coaches because they're talking about all these things. And I'm like, I grew up around this. These are the same conversations that we've been having since the seventies about how to help college baseball. Now it's in a great place and, and it's been driven, but there's still some things that we can still do to help grow the game even more. Oh, it it would, if in this book and Gene Stevenson had a TV package, he was way ahead of his time and what we wanted to do. And, you know, then we would get cut back and they cut the games and then they cut fall. And, uh, it, you know, we would play five weekends and wouldn't spend a lot of money. We'd go to Indiana State one weekend. We'd go to Bradley one weekend. We'd go to Vanderbilt and then we'd have a weekend. And you really knew what your team was like after 25 games. And guys weren't freshmen anymore. And then the spring would come and we'd have 75 games in the spring. And, uh and you could, you know, baseball is meant to be played. Baseball is not meant to be practiced. And uh, and that was our plan to move it because it's not fair to try to play in January and February, even in March. Uh, it should be played in the summer, and we would have an unbelievable product. What are some of the similarities now and then when you first got going? Oh, I, I think the coaching is is – really so much better uh and like some of the conferences that weren't really serious in baseball have gotten really serious like when i first started the big 10 baseball wasn't very important to them and now they've all built great stadiums they've hired great coaches uh they've really moved forward uh with their tv package and the things that they have going on there that's a a model league now for college baseball. And Jim Delaney was a big mover and a big shaker in that. He always wanted baseball moved to the summer. Well, I, I mentioned uh, that to somebody the other day because you look at the the record books at the University of Evansville and the amount of guys in those record books, a lot of those guys are Southern Indiana guys. And with Tracy Smith getting the stadium built at IU, some of those Southern Indiana guys that that would have maybe went to Evansville go to IU now, and with the Big Ten Network, where you know you look at some of the Southern Indiana guys that are playing at IU now, those guys in the past uh, when you were at Evansville and Bob Morgan were, was at IU would have probably ended up going to Evansville. Yeah, and that's why Bossy Field was such a big plus for us in the recruiting because guys wanted to play there. My ego got a little bit bruised because I said, "Oh, I don't need a facility," but then when I got two new facilities and both the teams the next year went to regionals. You realize the facilities do matter to kids nowadays. I don't care what and the indoor facilities that they have in the big 10. And that's changed uh, immensely uh, now, but I just think the exposure that baseball college baseball is getting and the people like Rooney and those people, uh, Mike's a good man. Kyle Peterson, Mike Rooney. Uh, it's 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 awesome. ESPN and and what and what the, the College World Series has grown into, uh, you know, is it's awesome. Circling back around here to the father son stuff, um, you know, through a lot of these interviews, a lot of the conversations have been similar. And the neat thing for me is it shows that you can still be hard on your kids. Uh, you can love them, but you can still be hard on them. And then, you know, what did, what did coaching Tim first uh, do to help you coaching me? 
and I was one of the first guys that started coaching my, my kid. And a lot of guys came after me that coached their kid and they would call me and they would say, well, you know, what's, and I said, well, the number one thing is they got to be able to play. I said, it's going to be nothing worse than having your kid on the team. If he can't play, I said, that that's not going to work. Then he needs to, to go somewhere else. Uh, with, and I coached you guys for eight straight years, which I think is pretty, pretty unique that you were four years apart. And yeah, you and Richie Price, I think, are the, the two because Richie coached three of them, but you know, they got drafted. So he, he also did it for eight straight years. So he, he's on right. with me as well with, with uh, Richie, Robbie, and, and Ryan Price. So yeah, he also did it for eight straight years. I think coaching Tim probably was a little bit more hard nosed than you were. But he was our, he was my first kid too, you know. So that that, that makes a difference, and because he kind of laid the groundwork for you. If he'd been a flop, and he wasn't a great player, but he knew the game, and he ended up coaching with me for he's one of the smartest years. baseball guys I've ever been around, Tim, and, and really liked the game, and was a great recruiter for us. He recruited, you know, he was my recruiting coordinator, and he he would lay the, the groundwork. And he, well, yeah, he thanks was, for that. For four straight years, I had to host recruits. You know, I get it when you're a freshman, you're in the dorms, and Scott Rowland took a visit. We had some big-time recruits besides the guys that we got. But even when I was older, I still had to host guys. So, like, all fall, it was like I was in the admissions department. But Tim and I were probably your best recruiters just because, you know, it's a good example of, like, okay, my, my own son decided to come play for me. Plus, we knew the right. program. You know, we could talk about the program in and out because we had lived it and breathed it. And, you know, Tracy what? Smith and Casey Smith talk about that a little bit. The interesting thing for me is a lot of guys at that time where their son plays for them, that ends up being some of the best winning percentages of the, that the program has. Uh, which is, is unique for, for me to, to look at as well. Well, I, I think it's hard for players to, to complain about the coach getting on them when you're treating their own <laughs> children like stepchildren and you're, you know, you're just making it tough on them. You need to run. You're terrible. You're never going to play here. You know, all that stuff that motivates your kids. And they've been, they grew up with it. They, you know, it didn't change because you went to college, uh, you, you've been dealing with that for 18 years, and then when you get there, I don't know, how many times did you think, maybe I made a mistake here. Maybe I should have. There are a few. I, well, <laughs> but when you coach then, you can speak to your own guys about that, like, hey, I went through the exact same thing, and I played for for my family members. Like, all, all the second guessing that you go through, like, maybe I should have went somewhere else. And I think everybody goes through it their sophomore year of college. You know, if you're at a four-year school – I think sophomore year is where guys, you know, and I was playing every day and you're still like, ah, oh, well, you know, you can speak to that because everybody goes through their ups and downs with it. Whether you're playing for your dad or not, you're going to go through some ups and downs during your college playing experience. I thought for sure you'd tell a story at Northern Iowa. Well, Coach Dom wanted me to because Coach Dom embellishes this story. And so Casey and I and Jack and I talked. Um, he said that's his favorite story. So... Since you brought it up, I'll, well, I'll talk about it. There's a lot of good parts of this story, too. We, we're flying to northern Iowa, and the flight out there is awful. We're dropping like 500 feet at a time, so people are puking everywhere. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is how Buddy Holly died. He died in Iowa in a plane crash because I love music. So I, I'm like, this is how Buddy Holly died. He died on a plane, so I'm freaking out. The whole bus is, The whole plane's freaking out. 
Well, at the time, I'm, I'm writing a diary. Garrett Matthews uh, for the Evansville Courier was having Evansville athletes, uh, different sports, write diaries. So this was my week. Uh, he loved me from high school because I won a, a 1960s trivia contest at Memorial High School, and he gave me this tie-dyed shirt. Um, so he calls. He's like, will you write it? And so I'm writing this. And we get to Northern Iowa on Friday night. Um, we're winning. I throw a ball into the dugout, and we end up getting beat. And poor Andy Noblet, who was my roommate that year, he's going to break the saves record at Evansville. And so I blow one of his saves. And after the game, we have rental cars and, and vans. And I should have known better. We rode in the car together because I'm having a good season. I think I had 14 hits in the first – I was in the top 20 in hitting at the time, I think – and so we ride together and I'm waiting by the, the rental car uh, with my stuff and you get done with the radio interview and you come out and you go, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? You go, well, you're not riding back with me. You go, I don't care if you walk, but you're not riding back with me. So I, I do the loser's limp and go into the van. Coach Dom likes to embellish. He, he likes to say that you made me walk back to the hotel. Now that it wasn't that bad. It, it probably felt like it at the time that I was walking back, but I jump into one of the other vans. But again, that speaks to not treating anybody any different. You know, obviously we're all disappointed that we lost, but you're not going to treat me any different than you would have anybody else on the team at that point. No, and I, I think, like I said, <laughs> I, I never did look at you and Tim as my son at the, at the ballpark or in the program. And you were both really good leaders for me. Uh, Going back to the recruiting, uh, I'm very proud that I had numerous brothers come play for me, that the younger brother was willing to come, like the Carols, like the Serafinis. Well, you had three uh, with the Serafinis. I had three with the Serafinis. And so you know you're doing something right uh, when the younger brother's willing to come into your program. Yep. What are some final thoughts uh, about anything? College baseball, being a parent, um, you know, kids now. Just what? What are some fi final thoughts before I let you go? Well, I, I think you know we're a baseball family. Your mother is the most competitive person in the in the Brownlee household, so she loves baseball. We still all do baseball. Uh, it's still part of our life. Uh, we've had a great run with it, and. Uh, I don't think there's, you know, there's nothing better than baseball. It's uh, it's America. Uh, if you study the history of our country from the First World War uh, going to right now, uh, the blue collar people, the inner city, uh, just baseball is life and it's failure and you get up the next morning and you get after it and uh, it's the greatest game going and it, and it always will be. Yeah, and for you parents listening in, like we we tell all these stories. I talk to my dad just about every day now um, because I do appreciate how I was raised. And, you know, it is very unique that all of us are still in baseball. And baseball has been great to our family. And, um, you know, for me, it's it's about trying to give back to baseball. And you've always been a really good example of that, of giving back to baseball and mentoring uh, coaches at all levels. Uh, there's even guys that you probably don't even know very well that, that ask how you're doing just because of how you treated people along the way and, and all the interactions that they've had with you as well. So I do, I do thank you for that, and I love you. You see the same people on the way down as you did on the way up, Ryan, and that's, you know, when you treat people the right way, 
it, what comes around goes around on, on that. And so, uh, love you to death and like doing this and thanks. Yep. Love you and give mama a hug and a kiss for me. All right. I'll do that. Thanks. Be safe. I thought it was fitting to end the series with my dad. Uh, I owe a lot to both my parents for how they raised and mentored me. I wouldn't be the person that I am today if, if it wasn't for how they parented me. Ultimately, I hope this is a great resource for any coach, player, or parent. Uh, being a coach, player, or parent has its ups and downs. Uh, Baseball is not the easiest sport to play, and especially coaching your own kid is, is going to have its ups and downs. Uh, as people, we all have common bonds, and the challenge that you face, uh, at some point somebody has gone through that, and hopefully this came out. Uh, with everyone that I interviewed that we all have challenges and there is common bonds with being people and the ups and downs that we have to face as human beings. Thanks for listening to Father and Son and remember to leave it better for those behind you. Oh